I did run into one interesting thing when I came earlier today. They told me that there are quite a few fellows in this congregation named David. Is, is that if your name's David, put your hand up for a second. I, I warned one of them that they have to watch out for Hebrew gardeners. I'm a David myself, so I know this because David in Arabic is Daoud, and in Hebrew is David or Dawid. And if those Hebrew gardeners are picking Dawids, <laughs> enough of that. Let's turn in the scripture to the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Uh, we'll read the first uh, ten verses and then uh, look at the first five. I'm, I'm reminded, by the way, by what I hear, and so many of you have your paper Bibles with you. I think that's wonderful, and I'm not opposed to electronics. But I remember being at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference one, and the speaker who was from Scotland said, uh, open your Bibles. And then as people were doing it, he said, ah, I love to hear those Bible pages flutter. Now those you haven't brought your Bibles, look up at me. I want to glower at you. <laughs> and I loved hearing your Bible pages flutter. Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. May God bless this reading of his word. In the Jordan Delta on the north shore of Galilee, there was a small fishing village named Bethsaida. Peter, Andrew, and Philip made their homes there. And one day Jesus met a blind man there. Listen to what happened as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. 
Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Many of us no longer see things as we did when we were younger. I am one of those. I actually have reading glasses and computer glasses with a different prescription and distance glasses. So I have all kinds of lenses. And you have have lenses, many of you, uh, in addition to the lenses in your eyes. So we need the right lenses to correct our vision. Question, what do you see when you look around? What you see will depend on the lenses you look through. The Galatians had first met Jesus through the true lens of Paul's spirit-led teaching. Now others had come from Jerusalem who told them to look through a clouded lens, a lens which required Old Testament works, circumcision being primary uh, among them. Paul wrote to correct this false teaching. And he said rather strongly, let him who teaches falsely be accursed. And I'm a little surprised that he said that because it may be that these folk who came weren't particularly evil. They may well have been born again true Christians. Because if you think about it, if you are born and raised with certain things that you understand to be required of God, and then you come to Christ, how how easy would it be to just drop all that? I think it would be hard, don't you? I think it would be very difficult. So some of them may have been truly false teachers who really believed differently, and others may just have been having a hard time letting go of the cultural things they grew up with. And that leads to us to think about the challenge. We all tend, and this is true in every country, in every land, in every community, we all tend to associate proper Christian living with our culture. Sometimes with things in our culture that aren't good. And I'm not thinking of a particular example, but maybe you're thinking of one. And I hope that might be, be so. Because we all need to follow the challenge. What is there in my life that I may feel to be necessary to be worthy of salvation? Uh, It might be that someone has taught, taught you to get up at 7.30 every morning and spend a half an hour in Scripture and prayer. Now, that would be a good thing to do. No question about that. But is it required for salvation? No, because salvation is God's gift. It's God's act, not our act. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do things, but only that our salvation is in no way dependent upon those things. This is why Paul was so concerned, because grace and works could not be combined. And some raised the question, could it be that grace saves and then Works maintain your salvation? I think I might have mentioned that last time. I can't remember what I said exactly. A month is a long time, and my memory is not that good. 
But our Armenian brothers, that's where they come in. That you can be a backslider. Well, you certainly can do things that are wrong. But if God has saved you, it is God who is guarding you through faith for your ultimate salvation. It's God's power all the way. God's power and none else. Not yours and not mine. If we were to think that any of these things, no matter how good they are, are required for our salvation, then we have no gospel at all. Because we could fail. And I don't, well, yes, I'm about to say something false. I was about to say, I don't know about you. But actually, I do. I was going to say, I don't know about you, but I know about me. That if my salvation depends on my works, I'm in deep trouble. But I do know about you. Not because I know you personally, but because I know what Scripture says. I've just been reading a book uh, called The Little Woman about the uh, missionary to China named Gladys Aylward. And uh, one day when the war was on, the Japanese had invaded China and the, sometimes the city she was in, Chen Yung, was controlled by the Japanese. And then Chinese would come and chase them out and back and forth and back and forth. And at one point, the Chinese were there. And she was speaking to a large crowd of ladies who had come into her courtyard. And she pointed her finger and she said, you are a sinner and you need Jesus Christ. <laughs> And sometime after that, soldiers came and they stayed and they would not let her leave. They would not let her even get food or the things she needed. And finally, the general, the Chinese general came and said, who told you about me? (laughs) And she said, "I, I don't know anything about you. Yes, you do. No, I, I really don't. And this conversation went on, and finally she realized he was in that doorway when she said, you are a sinner. And that general came to Christ through that testimony. We're all sinners. We all need Christ. Works righteousness in any form binds us with bonds, with chains that we can't break. But God's grace frees us. God's grace gives us assurance. God's power gives us absolute confidence in Christ alone for our salvation. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, that was important to Paul as it is to us. Consider Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. And Yahweh answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. That's my title for the sermon. I don't know if it's in the bulletin or not. That he may run who reads. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It will hasten to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. 
but the righteous shall live by his faith. And I want you to notice two things from that wonderful scripture. And the first one is, make it plain so he may run who reads. Let the gospel be plain in your heart so that you may run with Christ and serve him in all your life. And the second thing is that the righteous shall live by his faith. And we're familiar with that. It was quoted by Paul in Romans. And, of course, it was a major factor in Luther's Luther's, um, not conversion to Christ because he sought to serve Christ, but he did not understand the gospel. And it's what brought him to a full understanding of what Christ had truly done for him and for all of us. And that's so valuable. Faith. Faith is the basis for our eternal life. But we overlook sometimes the word live. And we think it only means that the righteous shall have eternal life by faith. And that's true. But that's not all. Live means that you are to live as one who has faith in Christ. That's to be different, somehow not the same as living as one who does not have faith in Christ. Faith is the basis of salvation, but faithful living is the evidence of that faith, and we're called to that. Paul fought to keep the vision plain, so plain that all who read might run without fear of failure, without fear of stumbling. And the challenge to us is first, do you have faith in Christ? Of course. But second, are you living by that faith? So that we can also carry the clear word of the gospel, we'll consider this morning Paul's identity, verses 1 and 2, Paul's prayer, verse 3, and Paul's reality and praise. That's a strange phrase, but Paul's reality and praise. So Paul's identity, verses 1 and 2, Paul addresses his letter, as all in his time did, with the name of the sender. I've often wondered why we won't do that. We have to look at the end of the letter to see who sent it, uh, unless we check the return address if they put one on. But Paul begins not just with his name. He tells us more. He tells us that he is an apostle, a messenger a representative of his Lord, come to bring the message to the people. He tells us that he is one among brothers in Christ who joined in his teaching. This letter is from Paul and the brothers who are with him to the Galatians. There is a jointness in this letter. And we think of it only as being from Paul, and it is, of course, But it's from the brothers, too. It's as though your church sent maybe a message and some money down to Kentucky churches, something of that sort. 
And it would be not just from the session, but from the brothers in Christ. He gives an authentication of his authority. He says that he was ordained not from men. This was challenged by his contemporaries. They said, he's not an apostle. He's not one of the twelve. And he wasn't one of the twelve. That certainly was quite correct. But he was an apostle called of God. They needed to know this for their own assurance of salvation, that he really was an apostle, that he was a true messenger from God. And they needed to know not only so that they could know and that their faith could be strengthened, but they needed to know so that our faith could be strengthened. Because these were among the people who passed on the faith to those who passed the faith, who passed the faith, who passed the faith to us. And if you think about that, There are two things I would have you think about it. First, be aware how marvelous it is that God sent messengers to bring the gospel of salvation to you, to me. That down through the ages, it passed on from one to another, to another, to another. And then secondly, after thinking about the wonder of God's provision for us, think about this wonder. You are part of the chain of witness to pass it on to others. There's a marvelous chain leading to us, and you now are in the chain. That's humbling, encouraging, challenging, all of that and more. Not from men, not sent by men, nor representing men, he says, nor through men. Now, our call today is from God. But my call as a preacher has been authenticated by men, by the presbytery. Quite appropriately, I do believe. But my call is from God, and their authentication is not a guarantee. Only the Spirit can guarantee that authentication. Paul's call was not initially authenticated by men at all. It was later uh, by James and Peter and others who recognized that he had the gospel that what he was preaching was true. And some of the things they struggled with, he helped them with. And likewise, in the other direction as well. As iron sharpens iron, as the scripture says, brothers help one another in their learning. None of us learns perfectly to begin with. Not called by men, but through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Logos, we say Logos which means the Word, the Word of God. And remember, remember John, the Gospel. How does it begin with that weird, weird statement? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wait a minute, is he with God or is he God? 
Yes. <laughs> because he is with the Father and the Spirit, and he is God. And we have this mystery of the Trinity, which we cannot explain, except we know what Scripture teaches. And it's there from Genesis on. But the Lagos, the Word of God, who came to live out the good news of God's redeeming love and to die for us upon the cross, so important, so important, and to be raised from the dead. That resurrection is our assurance that everyone who is in Christ will be raised. Do not think at this point that eternal life only begins with your resurrection. All who are in Christ have begun their eternal life. Eternal life begins when God calls you to himself in Christ. But it continues and I would say intensifies. I don't know if that's even a right word, but it's the word that occurs to my mind. So, this is Paul's message. And I give you this challenge. Paul's writing, his testimony, was an integral part of his life. Now, what's an integral part of your life? Well, your heart is an integral part of your life. If it stops beating, you stop living physically, not eternally. Integral means so much a part that it can't be taken away from your life. And that is a lesson and a challenge to us. Because if his message was an integral part of his life that could not be torn from his life, is your faith an integral part of your life to the point that it is so much a part of you that to be without it would be to be without life? It could not happen. It could not be. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 to 33. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now, Paul's not trying you to do whatever you have to do to please somebody, but he tries to do whatever he can do within Christ to be pleasing, and to help lead people to Christ. But notice how it begins. It might have said, <laughs> he might have written to the Corinthians, so whenever you preach God's word, or whenever you pray with somebody, do all to the glory of Christ. But he didn't. That would be true, but he didn't. He said, whether you eat or drink. Well, that's because the particular context had to do with whether you could eat meat offered to idols. So that's why he chose that. But it has more advantage for us than just knowing the context because eating and drinking is an ordinary thing. So whatever you do, do all 
to the glory of God, all to the glory of Christ. Every breath you take, every step you take, every when you're driving your car, I don't always drive my car to the glory of Christ. I need more than 60 seconds to confess my sins. And you probably do too. Paul's identity in Christ. Paul's prayer. Grace to you. Well, that sounds pretty natural to us, doesn't it? Grace to you and peace. But it wasn't natural at all. And how many of you, when you go through the shopping line and and pay the clerk, leave and say, grace to you and peace? It would seem very strange, am I right? And yet it shouldn't. You want to be an evangelist? Or if you don't want to be an evangelist, you just want to witness to Christ? Bring the Lord into the marketplace. I probably said this last time because I say it again and again and again because it's so important. Not all of us are called to be Billy Graham evangelists. And praise the Lord, we'd have too many. (laughs) But we are called to share the faith. And people do not always want to hear it. And they have chased God out of the marketplace. Praise God, we're again saying Merry Christmas. And you can do that in the market. But when you leave, say, the Lord bless you. Have a good day. Oh, you too, and the Lord bless you. Or you as well, and grace be unto you. What? Why did you say that? Now, there usually isn't time at the checkout counter to do more talking. But if you're in a community where people know you, and you say things like that to your neighbor, grace and peace unto you, sooner or later they say, why do you always say those weird things? And you could say, because they're not weird. Because they're part of God's gospel. What he's promised to us and brought to us and what he has given to me. And I pray that he'll give the same to you because, you know, I really like you, Mr. Neighbor. (laughs) Sometimes we need to help create the openings for evangelism, for sharing. Not formal evangelism, just sharing. And sometimes we need to just bring God back into the marketplace and not worry about whether other people like it or not. Because he's there. Whether they think so or not. That's part of his prayer. A prayer and an offering of grace and the peace which flows from grace. John 1.16 For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. I love that phrase. Grace upon grace. I I can't remember when the time was, but the the first time I came across one of these passages, there are several of them, but here's the one, grace upon grace. I thought, wow, that's what he does. I look back on my life, and it's so full of his grace. 
And it's not just the gift of salvation, as though just is even the right word. But it's the family he gave me to grow up in. Things at the school where I went to high school. Uh, a choir director that had us singing the Messiah and would tell us what it meant. And I had trouble really understanding what he was saying, but it was part of that repetition bit by bit into my young Christian mind that God used to gradually bring me to a higher level of understanding. Drip by drip, because I was kind of a drip and I needed to have, <laughs> have some drips to, to make me a, a better one. From his fullness, his grace overflowing and abundant, his spiritual blessings one upon another, and not just spiritual blessings, but all kinds of things. Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Wow. I guess God's not worrying, worried about spirit, spilling a little grace on the table. <laughs> He's willing to let it just run over. And that's a good thing because, you know, grace never stains the wood. We have grace upon grace. And peace, he says, John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is an assurance, a happiness that flows from the assurance of his grace. It's not the absence of warfare. It's not the absence of all anger or bitterness or being attacked by somebody else. Those things exist. But it's a peace in knowing that you are with God because God is with you. And you, I don't know if I've said this before or not and you're aware of it. Uh, but I've always been very active in politics. And I think Christians should be active in politics. In America, in other countries, it could be different because of the government. And we need to make our witness primary. But in America. And being active, I don't always agree with the things that happen. Do you always agree with everyone who gets elected or everything that they do? I don't think so. And well, I could get, oh, man, why did God allow that? Because whatever happens is allowed by God. He is sovereign. And I sometimes say, God, why did you let that happen? Don't you know any better? Yeah. Well, he knows better than I do, which is a good thing. But I can get very upset over politics. And to some extent I should. I should be concerned and be involved. But I should have peace. Whatever comes, whatever happens to our nation or any other nation, God is sovereign. Grace and peace. Peace not as the world gives unto you, but peace in your heart, peace in your spirit. Never having to 
be cast down and depressed. That's a hard thing to fight sometimes. But peace, assurance that our Father's love is steadfast, unshakable, unchanging. And that phrase, steadfast love, that occurs throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. And it comes from the Hebrew word, hesed. And it means love that cannot be shaken, no matter what you do. So a parent who has a child, and the child goes out and does things that are totally contrary to the faith, maybe becomes a thief or a murderer or a drug addict, but the parent still loves the child. God's love for us is greater than that. And the reality in the praise for Paul, verses 4 to 5, the reality is that, this, who gave himself, who gave the greatest gift possible, the gift of yourself. You give yourself to others. I hope you do. A wife to a husband, a husband to a wife, parents to a child, a child to the parents and then to others. The gift of oneself. Because only Jesus the Christ could satisfy God's justice. He is a just God, and sin cannot be overlooked or simply set aside. He can forgive us, but something still needs to be paid. Only Jesus the Christ could pay. Only Jesus the Christ could cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, the other day when I went to a Fellowship Church in Newton, I smile because I'm specializing in preaching at Fellowship Presbyterian churches. We have two of them on our presbytery. And I can't remember what happened the night before, but I woke up very, very late, and I always shower on a Sunday morning before I come, so I'm clean and presentable when I come. And yes, I did shower this morning. But that Sunday morning, I, I ran out of time, and I just got dressed, and I went. And when I walked in and met one of the elders, I said, I'm not fully cleansed, but I am fully cleansed from all unrighteousness. <laughs> Which is more important than taking a shower by a long way. Only Christ could cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that's what he's done. So Christmas gifts are wonderful. Here it is, the day after Christmas. Do they matter? Yes. Why? Because they are a sign of the love of the giver. Nothing else about them is really that important. If you get a gift that isn't what you wanted or it isn't something you can use, Praise the Lord. Give it away. Give it to goodwill. Give it to Habitat for Humanity. The one who gave it cared. That's important. Not whether it's what you wanted. So, two challenges. First challenge. Are you daily giving the gift of yourself? And I expect most of you are to someone who you love. 
Second challenge. When you start each day, are you filled with joy? Because one of the things Paul said in his reality and praise is, be filled with joy in the gift of Jesus. When you wake up, are you filled with joy? Sometimes we aren't, but we should be. Because salvation hasn't left overnight. Still there. He goes on to say that Jesus came to deliver us. When did he deliver us? Or when does he deliver us? I want you to think about this a little bit. Because the natural answer is, well, he delivered us on the cross. Well, that's true, but he delivered us in his birth. He delivered us in his life and teaching. He delivered us in his ascension and in his presence in heaven. And so I want to say this. First, he delivered us in time past when he gave himself upon the cross. That was determined before the foundation of the world. It's a completed action. It's done. And nothing can take that from us. He delivers us in time present, in this present age. We live in the age of the fall. I forget which hymn it was we sang where it talked about this evil age, something like that. I may have the phrase wrong, but I thought, yes, that's when we live. We live in this evil age because this evil age extends from the fall till Christ's return. And you say, oh, God, why do you allow things to go so badly? Well, because man fell. That's why. And that will come to an end. But in time presence, we have full assurance that he is with us now in time presence in whatever trial may come. And he delivers us in time future. When he gave himself for us, we were not yet born. He saved us for our future And our future is secure. As I get older, I'm not as secure upon my feet as I used to be. And I may not always be secure on my feet. But I will always be secure in Christ. Because he delivers me. According to the will of our God and Father, God is sovereign. His will will rules. Our salvation is not our will, but his will. And then he comes to the doxology. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What is the glory forever and ever? It's kind of like an eternal ticker tape parade. Do you all know what a ticker tape parade is? Some of you who are younger may not know. It used to be that when somebody did something amazing, uh, went into space and came back, then they'd get a bunch of cars and a whole parade and they'd take the fellow or lady down the uh, the street of, of the streets of New York or Chicago and people would throw out confetti. It used to come from tickers, but that's changed. Anyway, throw out confetti and, uh, to honor them, to give them glory. Eternal glory is a little bit like that. There's no ticker tape our confetti, but it's glorifying God forever and ever. So remember, please, these things. Be fully assured of God's steadfast love. Never changing. 
be fully assured of God's presence with you in hard times, whatever they are. Be fully assured that in God's sight, for all your failings, in God's sight, you are cleansed from all unrighteousness. He has done it. And finally, be ready to run with the gospel in both your actions and in your words. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would indeed give each one of us that full assurance. You know, Father, in our lives sometimes it's shaken, and that's our weakness, none of yours. But give us the assurance, and as you give us that assurance, help us truly to run with the gospel as those who have read it clearly and who know the wonder of grace upon grace given to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.